I want to welcome uh, Dr. Cal Stuffen. For, uh, is, she's an assistant professor in dermatology at the University of Utah. She graduated from the University of Washington School of Medicine in 1993. She completed an internal medicine residency at Maine Medical Center before entering clinical trials fellowship with George Kruger. She completed, completed dermatology resident, residency at the University of Utah and immediately joined the faculty. She is the co-director of the Utah Psoriasis Initiative, a research project aimed at correlating genotype and phenotype of psoriasis. The project sparked her interest in the medical comorbidities of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Her research and interests include sleep disorder and psoriasis patients in addition to genetics and clinical trials. Please welcome Dr. Cal Stuffen. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here in Scottsdale. Much better weather than we have up north. So I have a, a few disclosures which are mainly around the uh, speaking engagements that I do for the big three, Amgen, Abbott, and Centicor. Uh, I'm on the advisory board for Amgen. I'm an investigator for a number of different uh, pharmaceutical companies, mainly in the capacity of teaching POSI. So if anybody wants to learn how to do POSI, I'm the one. Okay. What we're going to do today is talk about the burden of disease, in particular with medical comorbidities. And hopefully at the end of this, you'll have a little better understanding of what those medical comorbidities are, in particular cardiovascular disease. And I'd like you to consider incorporating some of this information into your own practice including counseling on cardiovascular risk and other comorbid conditions. So, as Greg said, I joined the faculty in 2005, and before that, in 2000, when I became a clinical trials research fellow with Dr. Kruger, uh, we became interested in studying the genetics of psoriasis. And in that year, we established the UPI, the Utah Psoriasis Initiative, which is essentially a registry of now over a thousand psoriasis patients, mainly in order to look at genetics. But along the way, we learned quite a lot about comorbidities and epidemiology of the disease. We collected some big families like that one that's up there. So that's how we got interested in it. You all know that psoriasis has a tremendous physical burden of disease. The disease itself, uh, the direct result of having the skin disease, is quite a burden to people. I don't need to really go into that very much. Uh, and as a result, and as a result of this disease, there's also quite a psychosocial impact of psoriasis, uh, not only physical but emotional. Uh, it impacts one's work and financial and sex life. Um, but there's also the comorbid um, conditions, the frequent concomitant and predisposition to autoimmune, other inflammatory disorders and medical conditions that also are adding to this burden of disease. And it really becomes kind of a downward spiral for some patients. So I have some uh, photos here of uh, psoriasis. Uh, as you can see, the burden of disease uh, from just a cutaneous standpoint 
can vary quite greatly in any individual. They can have really small plaques. They can have really widespread plaques or plaques that are in the classic places, such as on the extensor knees or elbows. They can be very thin and can also be very, very thick. I think there's my pointer. can't really see it very well. There's also a number of variants of psoriasis that have uh, also great impact on the skin and in, in varying ways. Inverse disease, which is defined as disease in the body folds, can macerate and become very uncomfortable and become secondarily infected. So even a small amount of area can be very impactful. Guttate psoriasis can be very uh, explosive, as can erythrodermic psoriasis. And pustular psoriasis also can be very unstable. And so although large areas of affected body surface area are classically defined in the, when we use the definition of mild, moderate, severe, really it's not the only factor here. Uh, people who have disease on their hands and feet are very impacted because they can't use their hands and feet like they normally would. Or if they have scalp disease and the scalp makes up only 4% of the body surface area, um, it can be very impacted by it as well. So when you're thinking about treating patients, keep this in mind. Body surface area does not equal severity. In fact, even if the nails are just the only thing involved, which occurs sometimes, it can be very impactful. In one study of about 1,700 patients, over half reported they had pain, and 60, almost 60% reported limitations in their daily activities due to nail disease. And as you probably know, it's uh, very common and difficult to treat. This year, the National Psoriasis Foundation released the report on psychosocial impacts, and you can just see the numbers as you go down, how uh, impactful the disease is on how self-conscious patients are, how disfigured they are, how it alters their choice of clothing. This report also talks about how women are more impacted than men in many of these areas, and it's a very large problem for, for patients. The first comorbidity that I'm going to talk about is psoriatic arthritis. It's one that is, I feel, not to be missed. Uh, somewhere between 6 and 42% of patients with psoriasis will develop psoriatic arthritis, usually in the first 10 years. Some people put that as up in the 40s, and that also all depends on what kind of patients you collect into your registry. Our patients have, tend to be moderate to severe patients, and about a quarter of them have psoriatic arthritis, as been diagnosed by a rheumatologist. And this is a challenging disease because it, is, it doesn't have clear-cut criteria. I don't know if anybody has ever looked at the Mall and Wright criteria from the early 1970s or the Caspar criteria. It's a little bit like choosing from a Chinese menu, you know, with one of these and two of these and three of these, but uh, it, it makes it a little bit complicated. So I'm just going to teach you as dermatology professionals uh, some of the features to look for. I don't expect anyone to diagnose it completely because I think that really falls on our rheumatologists. So for peripheral disease, which is generally the easiest thing to see if patients have it, include dactylitis, which is the sausage digit, which is inflammation of the entire digit and looks just like a swollen up sausage. Enthesitis, right below that, which is in inflammation at the insertion of the tendon to, the, uh, to a bone. And the Achilles tendon is a really common place for people to get this. And plantar fasciitis is also an enthesitis. And people frequently have that. 
Uh, patients can have an asymmetric oligoarthritis. It's kind of a skip-around disease. Instead of RA, which is really symmetric, it can really skip around and hit one joint here, one joint there. And so you can see there's one knee swollen. And same thing with the fingers. You can see the asymmetry in, in the patient's hands. And also know that people with psoriatic arthritis tend to have more nail disease. Uh, again, can look a lot like rheumatoid arthritis when it's symmetric. Um, this is the most, one of the more common uh, forms of it. It can be up to 60% of patients have this symmetric arthritis. And arthritis mutilans, which is the very destructive and rare form of psoriatic arthritis, uh, where patients develop destruction of the joints to the point of them becoming floppy, uh, is fortunately rare, but something we want to prevent. Psoriatic arthritis can also look a lot like ankylosing spondylitis in that it has axial features. Uh, a spondylitis very similar to AS, but tends to be a bit more asymmetric, uh, a little bit less common, and they also share the same genetics as people with AS. They tend to be HLA-B27 positive, and it's more common in men. And the radiographic features here that are pointed out by the arrows, you can see they have um, asymmetric uh, bone formation along the, the spine and in the sacroiliac joint, this side is actually normal and this side is uh, inflamed. So we need to recognize it because of the fact that it can create tremendous disability. 20% of people with psoriatic arthritis develop significant disability um, it, and it impacts their work life. Uh, of those people not working in the NPF surveys, 44% uh, it's due in part or wholly due to psoriatic arthritis. And destruction can be prevented with early diagnosis and treatment, in particular with um, the TNF agents, anti-TNF agents, which I'll show you a little bit of data of later. And we're the front line. Most people develop psoriasis, most people who have psoriasis develop psoriatic arthritis after they develop psoriasis or Sometimes at the same time, about 15% develop it at the same time, and another 15% develop it before they develop psoriasis. So we're going to see the people first. We need to screen them. So simply ask them about joint pain. Don't forget to ask them about back pain. Some people don't think of their joint, you know, their back as a joint, or their sacroiliac area as joint. Uh, morning stiffness, pain that's worse when people sit, articular gelling uh, versus after activity is a feature of inflammatory, inflammatory disease. I asked them about plantar fasciitis or a tendency to get tendonitis because sometimes that can represent enthesitis. And then refer them to rheumatology for confirmation so they can get appropriate treatment. So let's talk now about some of the medical comorbidities of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In 2004, David Margolis who's an MD-PhD from Penn, came to the University of Utah and spoke to us about some of the epidemiologic findings that they were working on. And he stated at that time that any disease, in particular psoriasis, will not get much attention publicly or from the NIH unless you can show it is a public health threat. And he went on to do exactly that. Uh, comorbidities of psoriasis have really been uh, in, in the headline, I think, and some of these headlines uh, were created by David Margolis and, and Joel Gelfand uh, in finding associations between metabolic syndrome, risk of myocardial infarction, and, and mortality. And in fact, 
Daphna Gladman, who's a psoriatic arthritis specialist out of Toronto, published a paper in 1999 stating that psoriatic arthritis patients had increased mortality of all causes, but didn't really get into the cardiovascular portion of that until recently. And, and really, a lot of the excess death is related to cardiovascular disease. I like to think of the medical comorbidities as uh, sort of divided up into categories, but this isn't exactly clean. Um, the, the common theme that you'll see here is psoriatic arthritis is an inflammatory comorbidity, as is inflammatory bowel disease and uveitis, which um, patients with psoriatic arthritis are at risk for getting. And these conditions all probably have complex ba genetic backgrounds and share some of those genetic risk factors. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk about genetics today. Um, multifactorial and environmental influences on comorbidities uh, such as smoking, alcohol use, depression um, are hard to sort out because we don't really know what's the cause and what's the effect or is it the result of having psoriasis that somebody drinks. Um, we've tried to look at it both ways and actually we believe that smoking in our population is a risk factor for developing psoriatic arthritis and probably is a risk factor for developing palmar plantar psoriasis. And so you can also think of the other medical comorbidities also as uh, the sort of common theme. There's a hard way to, it's hard to sort out what's a cause and what's an effect. And, but the, the real common theme here still remains inflammation. I'm going to show you some data to support that. So obesity, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, uh, lymphoma, all these comorbidities are really now considered inflammatory disorders. And this sort of, sort of depicts it the same way. They're all overlapping. Um, patients who have psoriasis, tend to have an increased risk of diabetes, obviously psoriatic arthritis, cardiovascular disease. You can see all these things overlapping. And as I said before, they're also, we're also learning that they have similar genetic, uh, they share similar, similar genetic backgrounds. So I've done this talk a few times and people always say, so obesity is an inflammatory disease. Most people don't think of obesity as an inflammatory condition, but I'm going to show you some data to suggest that it probably is. And we don't really fully understand the relationship yet, but we know that it's overrepresented in psoriasis patients. If you do clinical trials, you know that obesity is very prevalent in our patients. Uh, these are all patients. Some of them are mine. Some of them are, have been on clinical trials. Um, a study recently that looked at about 10,000 patients, a meta-analysis of patients in phase two and three studies, uh, determined that the mean BMI for en at entry for psoriasis patients is about 30. And it's interesting, these are all just patients I've selected, they all have kind of very similar body types, just looking at their pictures. Obesity is felt to be an inflammatory condition. Um, it's believe, been believed that since the early 90s, actually. And the reason is that a lot of inflammatory cytokines are made by adipocytes, which we call adipokines. These are inflammatory cytokines secreted by adipose tissue that then can circulate systemically. And actually one of those key cytokines is TNF. So what you have here on the slide, and I apologize for it being complicated, one is the paradigm of psoriasis and the other of psoriatic arthritis, which shows you that 
Um, there are a number of different common inflammatory pathways in both psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Uh, particularly, you have T cells, macrophages, and various different Th1 and now Th17 cytokines, so TNF, IL-8, which recruits neutrophils, IL-23, um, and the same kind of cytokines are cooking in the, in the joints as well. You have slightly different results. In skin, you have resultant activation of the keratinocytes and thickening of the epidermis in the joints. You have activation of, of chondrocytes and osteoclasts that then can cause increased destruction and production of bone that should not be formed in, in places in the joint. What's going on in the adipose is, is actually fairly similar, and what this, with this slide shows you is that as uh, people gain weight, uh, there's recruitment of macrophages into the adipocyte realm where there's an interaction between the macrophages and the adipocytes, and there's adipocyte hypertrophy and hyperplasia and more infiltration in the macrophages, and they talk to each other, and then those cytokines can become systemic. If you lose weight, then that actually can be reduced. And all of the same cytokines that are in the joint and in the skin are also elaborated by the adipocytes. So TNF, IL-6, IL-8, IL-10, CRP, quite a number of familiar players in the pathophysiology of psoriasis. We think that psoriasis probably increases the risk of, sorry, obesity probably increases the risk of psoriasis, and we based that, uh, we, we, Utah actually believed it might have been the other way around, but this paper came out, this is the nurses' health study, number two, which looked at uh, young women who are nurses, a lot of them, 116,000 of them, who they send questionnaires to every year, and looked at the relative risk of incident psoriasis relative to weight gain or weight loss from the reported BMI at, eight, at 18. So as these quartiles are these are not really quartiles, but they're divided up into categories of, of BMI. So uh, this BMI here of 21 to 22, 23 to 24, sorry, I can't see the screen very well, 25 to 29, as you get into larger, into higher BMI, subsets, you see risk of incident psoriasis go up, and it goes down if you go the other direction. And so we believe that it's likely a risk factor. And actually, there's a recent paper that looks at genetics in Chinese patients that show that if you have HLAC, W6, which is the genetic risk factor, the main genetic risk factor for psoriasis and obesity, you have a tremendous odds ratio of developing psoriasis. In Utah, uh, with this, published, this was published in 2005. Uh, we didn't see anything different than anybody else, that the uh, mean BMI in our psoriasis population was around 29, whereas the Utah population is around 26. <clears throat> and then this analysis, which very simply is just uh, a probability of de developing psoriatic arthritis based on your BMI at age 18, we ask our patients, what is your weight and your height at age 18? They generally remember that pretty well. We ask them what it was when they graduated from high school, and they're pretty good about that. And what you see is that if you have a, a BMI of 30 at age 18, which is this red line, this is the probability of remaining PSA-free, which means increased risk of psoriatic arthritis. 
it's quite a lot higher than if your BMI at age 18 was 25 to 30 or if it's less than 25. So our data suggests similar features of obesity increasing risk of psoriatic arthritis in, in obesity. So metabolic syndrome, which is defined by the uh, U.S. National Cholesterol Education Program at this time, is having uh, three of the five central obesity, triglycerides greater than 150, uh, a low HDL, uh, blood pressure greater than 130 over 85, or fasting glucose of over 110 is overrepresented in our psoriasis population. This is a study done in 2007 uh, which looked at patients with psoriasis versus controls. You can see that the psoriasis patients, the metabolic syndrome, uh, was present in 30% as opposed to controls, which is 20%. And I think in, a lot of this will also depend on the kind of population that's recruited and is higher in other populations. And coronary disease. As I mentioned before, um, Dr. Gelfand, Joel Gelfand, and David Margolis uh, looked at sorry, uh, uh, the risk of psoriasis as contributing to cardiovascular disease. What they did was they went to the UK where they have this very large database called the GPRD, which is essentially a registry of, of data. Um, all the physicians in the UK are incentivized to enter all data, all clinical data, treatments into a large database. And so therefore, there's a, a very large amount of data on all patients. And they looked at psoriasis patients, divided them up into severe or mild, and the severe patients were defined as those who had systemic treatment for their disease, and mild as those who didn't, and compared them to controls. People didn't have psoriasis. And after they adjusted for cardiovascular risk factors, determined that if you have severe disease, severe psoriasis, you had a much greater relative risk of developing coronary vascular disease at an early age. So at the age, and I'll just show you the bars here. So this is the mild cohort. Um, you can't really see the, this very well, but this is the mild disease and this is the patients with severe psoriasis. And so at a younger age, the relative risk of developing, uh, of developing cardiovascular disease is quite a lot higher than if you have mild psoriasis, and that was all significant compared to the controls. And that difference decreases as people get older because the prevalence, the prevalence and incidence of coronary artery disease gets a lot higher as people get older, and so that difference decreases, but it's still present even at age 60. So the question then was, well, does more inflammation imply more risk of, of, of comorbidities? So the more severe the psoriasis, the more the risk of comorbidities. And I think there's actually quite a lot of evidence suggesting that there is a link and that occurs, as I just showed you, in coronary disease, but also in lymphoma, likely in other malignancies. The risk for lymphoma, and this is exactly the same group of people, David Margolis, and uh, the same... Um, the same GPRD data set looking at mild versus severe psoriasis and looking at uh, lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's disease, Hodgkin's disease, and T-cell lymphoma determined that if you just look at all types of lymphoma, uh, the risk is greater in the severe patients. And interestingly enough, the risk of T-cell lymphoma really stood out and don't really understand why that is, if that's because of chronic inflammation occurring in the skin uh, leading to 
uh, clonal T cells or if that's a result of uh, immunosuppression. We can't really separate that out, but that's, uh, that's the thought. So then we asked, well, if psoriatic arthritis um, patients have more inflammation, could their comorbidities also be overrepresented and perhaps worse than in the psoriasis population? We know that people with psoriatic arthritis, similar to just psoriasis, have increased cardiovascular risk. This paper was published just uh, about a year or so ago, uh, looked at uh, cardiovascular risk in PSA, and even after adjusting for BMI, sorry, Oh, back. There we go. Um, diabetes with an odds ratio of 9.2. Hypertension, lower HDL, increased insulin resistance, all overrepresented in that population even after adjustment for obesity. So people with psoriatic arthritis perhaps um, have even more risk of, of metabolic syndrome and uh, cardiovascular risk. At the University of Utah, what we did with our psoriasis patients is sent them a questionnaire. And we're interested in looking at sleep disorder because if you look at a patient who's got obesity and metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular disease, you cannot exclude the possibility that they have sleep apnea, which is obstruction of the airway. When people sleep, they stop sleeping or stop breathing, and they have increased sympathetic nerve activity and hypertension, and they're at risk for cardiovascular events when they're sleeping and cardiovascular disease in general. So we wanted to know, are we seeing this in our patients, given the fact that they all have obesity and diabetes? So we sent questionnaires to our psoriasis patients and got about 36% back. And we also recruited controls from our dermatology clinics and compared demographics and BMI and other uh, medical problems, including sleep problems. And what we found and hopefully we'll get this published here in very soon as we're submitting this data now, is that our arthritis population is slightly older than the psoriasis population, and their BMI was, was greater than the psoriasis population versus the controls. They had more diabetes. The arthritis had more, arthritis population had more diabetes. They had more sleep apnea, although it wasn't statistically significant, more restless legs and insomnia. So when we looked at, and we look back at that paper I showed you a bit ago, it showed that, yeah, 29% of our patients had, a, or our mean BMI was 29, and the Utah population was a mean BMI of 26. And when we looked at this new data on that background, really what we found here was that the, again, we see the Utah population um, and our clinic controls have about the same BMI, so at least we know that our populations that we're looking at as controls are representative of the Utah population. And it looks like the psoriatic arthritis patients are what are really driving the, that BMI because they have a higher BMI than the patients who just have psoriasis. So it sort of proposed the model of a vicious cycle occurring, and I'm not really sure what, which one happens first, and perhaps they happen at the same time. But I, I believe that, that obesity may increase the risk of psoriasis with increased inflammatory milieu and with increased itching and discomfort, diminished quality of life and depression. Those factors all contribute to obesity and all of those factors, both psoriasis and obesity, are contributing likely to diabetes and cardiovascular disease and psoriatic arthritis. You can't really know where the chicken and the egg are. Uh, but I think that 
Um, perhaps it's not that important because we're still going to have to just manage it. Once they have it, we're going to have to deal with it. So it's important to recognize these comorbidities for good patient care. And we, again, as dermatology providers, are at the front line. So it's important now to think a little bit about when you're selecting therapies um, to take these things into consideration. So this is all a little bit about risk management. We don't want to make their comorbidities worse. We want to, of course, provide the best practice, and we want to provide good patient quality of life as well. So I am advocating selecting therapies with these comorbidities in mind. So first, let's just talk about selecting therapy when it comes to quantity of psoriasis in its most narrow definition of body surface area. You can kind of roughly divide it into limited versus widespread disease. So limited or localized disease in general, we start with topical agents. And with widespread disease, I would like to convince you to not always start with topical agents. Um, I think candidates for topical therapies who have limited or localized disease, patients with psoriasis that have not previously been treated with topicals or are known to respond to topicals, they have to be able to tolerate it and are willing to apply it or and able to apply it and that there's no contraindications to their use of the topical agent, and a clear plan for follow-up. I think one of the biggest problems that I hear from patients is they say, I went to this doctor, and they gave me a tube of stuff, and said, see ya. And, and sometimes these patients had huge amounts of psoriasis, you know, 20, 30, 40%. And I think that that's a, a real failure on the part of the provider to provide good follow-up. And I think when you're, even if you have a patient who you're thinking about giving some type of systemic treatment to, sometimes it's worth trying a round of topicals if they haven't really given it a good college try. But if you do that, tell them you only want to do it for two or three weeks. And this is sort of the Steve Feldman approach. He says to follow them up in one week. I don't think one week is really enough time to see a lot of improvement in many patients. So I say, let's do it for two to four weeks and make that appointment. And if you're not 75% better at that point, talk more about systemic agents. So this patient, in my opinion, is not a good candidate for topical disease or topical therapy. He's got uh, widespread disease, um, and he is a candidate. Looking at him right now for a lot of different agents: ultraviolet light therapy, systemic agents, orals, methotrexate, cyclosporin, and striatine, biologic agents, and if he has psoriatic arthritis, which he does, if you look at his fifth finger there, you can see he's got joint deformity. And then you really have to start thinking about agents that also treat psoriatic arthritis. So selecting therapy based on comorbidities is not a new concept. Um, think about it when you're treating your diabetes and hypertension patients. We use ACE inhibitors or coronary disease and hypertension. We use beta blockers. So the two bird with one stone concept. And the same holds true, I think, for, will hold true ultimately for coronary disease in psoriasis, but we're still it's in an early stage of that. So here's a patient who is a 43-year-old man who's had a greater than 15-year history of psoriasis and a body surface area of about 70%. Amazingly enough, when I first saw him, which was nine years ago, he had never been treated with anything but topical agents. So what are your treatment options? A show of hands, what would you do first line? Anybody with topical triamcinolone? Oh good, nobody's brave enough to raise their hand. Thank you very much. 
How about prednisone? Would anybody do a round of prednisone? So nobody's going to fall for that trick. You've seen the notes already, huh? <laughs> um, how about methotrexate? Would you consider that? Sure, absolutely. It's on the list of possibilities. Cyclosporin? He's got pretty bad disease. I think you have to know more about him before you decide to pull the plug on cyclosporin. Enbrel, Humira, Remicade, probably the same, same thing. He's a candidate for all of, those, uh, all of those drugs because he's got severe disease. So this is a patient that none of you were tripped up with who I saw recently who was given prednisone. He, was, he told he was flaring, and he told his doctors at the health center, I have pustular psoriasis. I need to be treated with something, and they gave him prednisone, and he ended up in the hospital for a week. And what was really sad about the story is that he kept on telling them, I have psoriasis, this is psoriasis, but they wouldn't believe him. They thought it was some kind of an infection or a drug eruption. So just know that prednisone can be sometimes your friend if you have somebody with psoriatic arthritis who needs a little bit of inflammation toned down, but it is a double-edged sword, and it can absolutely trigger erythrodermic psoriasis. And I really hope that people wouldn't uh, give prednisone as their first-line treatment for psoriasis. So many times we select therapies based on efficacy, and the efficacy data that we have for most, uh, most of our drugs are really looked at in, in the clinical trials in the 12 to 24 to 26 range, and, what, and, and that's because that's the controlled part of the, the studies. Uh, we have placebo control in that part. It's not open label, and so it's the fairest assessment, um, although it's not really fair to look at them across the board because all these patient populations are a little bit different, and they have different recruiting uh, criteria. Um, but in general, just to give you an idea of where things sort of stack up and efficacy in the early 12 to 24 week range, I think it's reasonable to put them side by side. And so, and then putting the uh, traditional therapies next to them, I would put methotrexate in the 12 week to 24 week efficacy range as alephacept, which is somewhere around a 30% pause each 75, although historically has been said to be more effective than that. Cyclosporin and PUVA are probably up closer to infliximab and now Stellara, which is probably somewhere between the adalimumab and the infliximab range there. Um, narrowband UVB is probably POSI 75 at 12 weeks in most patients. However, as I mentioned, there are problems with side-by-side -side comparisons. They're not head-to-head. They're different populations. There's inter-rater reliability of the measures like POSI and different endpoints. And the real problem is that that guy that I showed you isn't going to be treated for 12 weeks, right? You've got him for years. And so you cannot base everything on efficacy at 12 weeks or 24 weeks. You really have to take into consideration a lot of other things. So here's more information about him. He's had a medical history that's been uh, ripe with all of the comorbidities I've been talking about. He has hypertension. His BMI is 39.8. He has type 2 diabetes, and he smokes. CRP is elevated. His liver function tests are elevated a little bit. It's got um, a defines, he defines metabolic syndrome and that he has high triglycerides and a low HDL. And uh, obviously he his diabetes defines him as well. And he doesn't have hep B or C, which I screen for in all my patients that are going to use methotrexate or biologic agents. So as you're thinking about this patient, um, 
narrowband UVB would be a consideration if he didn't have psoriatic arthritis. Um, there's no data really out there at all to suggest differential effects in obese patients. There's no studies at all. Soriatane and ultraviolet light are, is a good option for people with soriatane. I do this uh, pretty frequently. But that can increase triglycerides. Um, and we don't really have data on risk of cardiovascular disease in soriatane patients. But when they looked at this in the GPRD, the UK data set, didn't see an increased risk. In methotrexate, there's a reduced risk of cardiovascular disease in the rheumatoid arthritis population. Although in patients with diabetes and obesity and abnormal liver function tests to begin with, they have an increased risk of hepatotoxicity. Oh, and I forgot to tell you who drinks. And, he, and it can also increase homocysteine levels. Uh, cyclosporin certainly can increase um, hypertension and glucose and triglycerides. The TNF agents, um, which I have listed here and haven't added, golimumab, which is the latest one that's indicated for psoriatic arthritis, are very good agents for treating psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. I put this slide in here for your reference. I won't go through it in much detail other, to remind, other than to remind you that etanercept is a fusion protein, thus the word sept. Anytime you see sept at the end, it's a, a fusion protein. And UMAB and IMAB indicate human monoclonal antibody and chimeric, the I represents chimeric monoclonal antibody of adalimumab and infliximab. So those two are monoclonal antibodies. They have all different properties in terms of their half-life, how they're administered and dosed. This was a paper that I, uh, when I was reviewing this data, looked at the effect of weight on the efficacy of biologic therapy in patients with psoriasis. They reviewed a whole bunch of papers and looked at infliximab, etanercept, alefacept, efalizumab actually too. And when looking at different agents, they, all these drugs are not really created equal because they're dosed a little bit differently. Infliximab is given as a weight-based dose, and you don't see a difference, a, a significant difference in efficacy in obese patients because they're dosed based on their BMI, based on their weight, whereas a tanercept is not, and there is a difference in people who weigh more than 89.36 kilograms, have a posi 75 of 20% at week 12 uh, compared to um, 41% in the patients who weighed less than that cutoff, arbitrary cutoff. And Humira, uh, Humira adalimumab, in, in the reveal study, looked at the proportion of posi 100 patients at week 16, and in the patients who were the heaviest, they had uh, a lower posi 100. That difference isn't so much at posi 75, but there is a difference there. Although they did have a 400-pound patient in that group that cleared. So uh, it's not always true, but in general, they're very um, patients with obesity can be difficult to treat, in part because a lot of our dosing strategies are not weight-based. So this patient, as I have showed you before, has uh, pretty remarkable psoriatic arthritis, another tragedy um, that he looked like this when he came to me, having only been treated with topical agents. And so when taking him into consideration what agents you should treat him with, really you have to think about things that are going to have good psoriatic arthritis efficacy. And so as promised, I wanted to just say that Tanercept, adalimumab, infliximab, and now golimumab, although golimumab's um, efficacy data I don't have up here, sorry, um, all have 
shown that there is radiographic improvement in over time in these patients treated with anti-TNF agents. So in patients who have psoriatic arthritis, and this is really not, does not hold true of methotrexate, you really have to think strongly if they have ongoing inflammation that you want to try to use something that's going to prevent joint destruction. This is the change in the mean total sharp score, the TSS, and the placebo patients are in orange and the etanercept patients are in yellow. And you can see that there's no change, in fact, a drop in that score up to 48 weeks and a, and a worsening of joint destruction in the people who receive placebo. The same holds true for infliximab. These patients um, had improvement in their sharp scores and also with Humira. Um, the placebo patients pretty much hold, hold straight across. Some people are concerned that anti-TNF agents may increase body weight. This was a study uh, done looking at methotrexate versus etanercept or infliximab, and it was retrospective, and it suggested that patients with, that were on etanercept or infliximab gained weight a mean of 2.5 kilos at the end of treatment on the infliximab, whereas the methotrexate patients didn't. And the same thing's been said of Humira. When I went and looked back at this paper, so don't always just read the headline, right? Um, the, the body weight at enrollment of the methotrexate patients and the tanercept and infliximab are all the same. But look at their POSI score at enrollment. It's 8 versus 18. And the patients with infliximab and tanercept were very severe patients, methotrexate patients not so much. And we don't really know if this represents a lean body weight gain or an adipose body weight gain. So we don't really know if this data reflects um, a true weight gain because of the drug or if the patients with severe disease are just more likely to actually gain more weight. We just don't know the answer to that yet. So I'm not sure that I believe that TNF agents cause weight gain. Uh, this study suggests that they do gain some weight, but it's actually lean weight not adipose in rheumatoid patients, and their insulin resistance improves. So my sense is that there's a lot more work to be done, but it's difficult to treat people with obesity, no matter if you have a weight-based uh, dosing or not. So in the last five minutes, just talk a little bit about cardiac risk. Can we modify it with our drugs? And the answer I'll tell you right now is I don't know, and I can't advocate for anything because just don't know the answer yet. Uh, first of all, you need to use your primary care physicians. Some of you who do primary care exercise your primary care skills and uh, control diabetes and hypertension and weight gain and manage hypercholesterolemia, consider workup of sleep apnea. At this point, I'm just going to present the indirect evidence that some, uh, there's some suggestion that anti-TNF agents uh, may improve cardiovascular risk. And this data is based solely on the CRP, which is C-reactive protein, which is considered now an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So if you have a CRP less than one, it's low risk. CRP one to three is intermediate, and CRP greater than three is considered a, a risk factor, high risk factor for developing cardiovascular disease. So the folks at Amgen um, last year took some serum out of the freezer and looked at CRPs retrospectively in patients who were on their global phase three studies, measured CRP at baseline in, at 12 weeks and 24 weeks in the placebo and the treated arms of people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. So this is how to read this graph. 
There's three different colors. The top color is three and above. The CRP is three and above. From one to three is that intermediate risk, and one below is that low risk in the WHO criteria. And then looked at placebo, which are the white boxes and triangles and circles, versus the patients who got drug in the first 12 weeks. You can see that in the placebo-treated patients, in the people who have CRP, mean CRP greater than three, their CRPs actually went up. That wasn't statistically significant, but they didn't drop. And patients who were treated with etanercept dropped into one lower risk category in all the different groups. And that risk, that drop happened more dramatically in the psoriatic arthritis population. And once patients who were getting placebo the first 12 weeks got drug at 12 weeks, you can see their CRPs dropped just like the others. Uh, patients that have moderate to severe uh, psoriasis tend to have an elevated CRP, especially if they're obese. And, and there was a little more of an effect um, in, in these patients who have psoriatic arthritis, probably because they tend to have higher CRP. And the greatest effect on CRP was seen then in the overweight patients, the patients that PSA and also with statin use. And if you want to read a, a paper about statin use and CRP, look at the Jupiter study in the New England Journal. Uh, independent risk factor of CRP as the only risk factor given them statins that reduced their cardiovascular events dramatically, so dramatically that they stopped the trial early. And then um, methotrexate, when looked at in an RA patient, is thought to reduce cardiovascular risk as well. Um, and that's, uh, that's a fairly large case control study out of the VA population. And so we're hoping to perhaps repeat that study looking at TNF agents at, at some point. So again, I don't really know if TNF inhibition um, is going to prevent cardiovascular disease. There's some indirect evidence out there. Um, there's also studies that look at cardiovascular uh, carotid artery intimal thickness and flow-mediated dilation, which are surrogate markers for cardiovascular disease. Um, that you can look at, and those, again, are indirect suggestions that TNF agents may reduce risk, but we just don't have all the data yet pro prospectively. So I put on here the new paradigm, um, suppression of inflammation. Um, the old paradigm is just keeping the patient's disease under control. We have about exactly the same paradigm here. So when I think about treating psoriasis patients, I think of the old paradigm as as this. The red represents the natural history of psoriasis. The area under the curve could be considered perhaps the bulk of the inflammation the patient has. That's, uh, that's one way of thinking about it. But the red line just represents just the natural history of disease smoldering along. And treatment um, in the old fashion used to be you would treat somebody with, and that's in green, I'm sorry, it doesn't show up very well, but you might treat somebody with methotrexate and then they clear and then they take the, the drug away to reduce risk of long-term toxicity of methotrexate and the patient flares a little bit to a point where they can't stand it anymore and then you say, okay, let's do some light or, or maybe you'd add the light on it with, at the methotrexate um, ending or cyclosporin and you get these patients that would just do this roller coaster and, and they're pretty unhappy about it. And if you taper or withdrawal, withdraw a drug like methotrexate, a lot of times you have trouble getting to work as well the second or third time, which is probably something to do with resistance to the drug from an enzymatic perspective. Um, but also in some cases, like with infliximab, neutralizing antibodies, that may be true of, of, the, uh, of adalimumab, uh, never been uh, stated by the company with a Tanercept that there's neutralizing antibodies, but 
I think we've all seen patients who have been on, an, on a biologic who have then stopped it and then try to go back on it six months later don't always get the same response that they did the first time. We really don't understand why. So I would advocate for initiating treatment and working very hard to suppress their psoriasis. And my belief is that we'll be suppressing inflammation at the same time, depending on what agents we pick. Um, we don't really know this, but if we suppress obesity, will we suppress psoriasis? That, that's a question that I still have. Um, what we don't really know is, will we increase their risks of lymphoma or malignancy? We don't really know the answer to that yet. Um, I think that if you let them smolder along, Certainly, some of the data from the GPRD suggests that they have a much increased risk of disease. So hopefully, in the next few years, we can tease that out. So in summary, most of our decisions are how best to benefit our patients in terms of reducing psoriasis symptoms and improving function and maintaining quality of life. Um, we choose our therapies based on reducing risk already, right? We screen them for TB and hepatitis B and C. Uh, we watch for liver toxicity and hepatic toxicity. But in the near future, it's my hope that we uh, see data suggesting that you can suppress inflammation and suppress cardiovascular risk. So I'd like you to consider in your practices because uh, CME now is all about changing behavior, right? Uh, take an extra minute or 30 seconds. It doesn't really take very long to ask about arthritis symptoms. Urge your patients to see their primary care physician, especially if they have severe disease um, or cardiovascular risk. It doesn't take long to ask those questions. Warn your patients about these associations, uh, especially if they have risk factors, that psoriasis may be an independent risk factor of cardiovascular disease. And consider checking the blood test that you need to look for metabolic syndrome yourself. I mean, if you're already doing blood work, get a fasting blood sugar, get a hemoglobin A1C if you know they have a, a blood sugar that's abnormal. Get the lipids yourself. You don't necessarily have to manage them, but you can diagnose them. Say, you have diabetes, you need to see your primary care physician. We've picked a lot of patients up in our clinical trials just screening them because they screen these patients for, for those things. And then you have a conversation that you need to have with their primary care physician or their provider. But at least you've addressed it and you've not just said, oh, just go see your doctor. You've addressed it. So thank you for your attention and I'm happy to take any questions that you have. Thank you very much for the excellent talk. Um, I have a couple of questions. If you have a patient who comes in who has less than 5% BSA but is complaining of joint pain, would you send them to rheumatology before starting them on a biologic, or would you just automatically start them on a biologic, assuming that it is probably psoriatic arthritis? I, I always have them see rheumatology because okay. I think if you try to, as a PA or as a dermatologist, try to say this patient has psoriatic arthritis, um, the, the, sometimes it's not accepted that they need to have a diagnosis by a rheumatologist. Yeah. And I think it's only fair to have them fully evaluated. Oftentimes they don't. I've had a lot of patients who don't. And so I, I, I absolutely think they should be evaluated if you're very suspicious. Okay. I had two other questions really fast. Do you know of any medications, you know, a lot of the patients that I see are well, very old, like 80, and they have 80s, and they have uh, pretty bad arthritis. Are there 
as well as, as psoriasis. Are there any medications that you should not, um, you should be aware of that Enbrel may interact with or a biologic may interact with? You know, there are numerous medications mm -hmm. for like congestive heart failure and... So, um, if a patient has congestive heart failure, if they have class three or class four heart failure, you have to be especially careful with anti-TNF agents right. if they're relatively contraindicated. So absolutely you need to know, and, and I often call the cardiologist and ask them to, to help me along and, and help me decide if it's appropriate. Um, there are not really very many, if any, drugs that interact with these agents. Um, it's not so much about a drug interaction, it's more about uh, the risk of infection and the risk of, because of immunosuppression. Right. And cer certainly elderly patients are going to be at increased risk of, of you know, immunosuppression, more risk than, than a younger patient. Okay. Uh, but if somebody's got really severe psoriasis, I don't withhold systemic agents. You just have to be especially careful of managing risk. Right. And then my last question um, was on the, uh, the slide with the risk of the T-cell lymphoma. Um, was that those on biologics or were those people with just severe psoriasis not on any treatment or was it both? Excellent question. Um, that database was actually mined before 2002. And so biologic agents other than use in rheumatoid arthritis patients who weren't included in that because we didn't really use... Um, those biologic agents for psoriasis until after uh, efalizumab was approved. You know, that was right. 2003 and alefacept was approved. So, so that database doesn't include biologic risk in it. And so, um, so the answer is I don't know. Um, they looked at T-cell lymphoma. What you don't know about that is cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, was it being confused for psoriasis? Was the chronic inflammation in the skin contributing to the risk of T-cell lymphoma? Was it the cyclosporin that they were using? Because that's certainly a risk factor. Immunosuppression is a risk factor for malignancy. I don't think anybody, you can't really separate them out. just don't know the answer because they use the definition of severe as people who had systemic okay. agents. Thank you. Thank you for your questions. Anybody else? Hi. Um, I know we don't, don't have good data on this yet, but um, do you suggest to your psoriasis patients who are obese, do you suggest that losing weight may improve their severity of their psoriasis? So there are anecdotal reports of people having dramatic weight loss and having control of their psoriasis occur. I have seen uh, an equal number of people who have not, and you're right, there is no good data on that. Um, absolutely, I think they should uh, lose weight. It will certainly decrease their comorbid risk. Um, so, yeah, I make that recommendation. It's a really hard thing for them to do. It's really tough. Thank you. Wonderful presentation. I really appreciate your being here today. Um, this, this is maybe a little on the side, but I deal with senior citizens on Medicare. And one of the first tests that I'm interested in is the, is the hemoglobin A1C, which Medicare will not pay for, and this is about $100, and especially in this economy, there's, they're not doing anything with it. Is there any kind of effort that we can put, I mean, even if you put the diagnosis metabolic syndrome, they won't pay for it. So, I mean, this is a valuable tool 
And is there any pressure that we can put on uh, powers that be to get, make that be provided? Oh, yeah, that is a little off the side of... <laughs> I'm not really sure how, how one can change Medicare to pay for, uh, pay for things. I wish they would pay for biologic agents uh, better than they do for the Medicare population as well. So I'm not sure I have an answer for you. <laughs> well, we, we've got to work on that area somehow. I don't know where to begin. <laughs> All right, thank you very much.